1997. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. And the United States police force has everything under control. This is the Diabolique webcast, and I'm your host, Stephen Slaughterhead. Joining me on this episode is Brett Michel. Brett's the film critic for The Improper Bostonian and a fellow member of the Boston Online Film Critics Association. On this episode, we're going to discuss John Carpenter's 1981 film, Escape from New York, which has been released on Blu-ray by Shout Factory. So let's get right to it. So you got to understand, that this was in the era post Star Wars on 77, where every time there was sort of a sci-fi genre film coming out, there would usually be, you know, if, if the movie happened to be based on a book, they would release a paperback edition rebranded with the artwork from the film, or in the case of a picture like this, yeah. there was a book that was adapted from the screenplay, and so... Yeah, they had that, yeah. Like, like Some many movies. of the the movies of the era, I would get really excited about it in advance, and I would go and pick up the paperback, and I would start reading it. And because I was so young, you know, I would have been eleven when when this movie was coming out, yeah. Escape from New York. Um, reading in comprehension, I would I would get so excited, I would start reading one of these books, hoping I would finish it by the time the movie was released. But you know, more often than not, I would only read you know, like a quarter of the book before the film would come out. Yeah. And uh, that, that was the case with this one. But it's just as well, because, you know, who the hell wants to read a book that's adapted from a screenplay? The only reason I would do that is to read the scenes that didn't make it into the final film. Yeah, but oftentimes it was an invention of the authors who would just need to pad out the material because, you know, a movie that's less than two hours making a a book version of it there's really not going to be much to that book so they have to really mm. fill it out so it's not even necessarily stuff that's been cut although that that would happen too yeah well it happened for um escape from new york they had the whole colorado bank robbery scene right right at the beginning which of course is included in this this new blu-ray that's just been released yeah and it's actually it's a it's a really fun sequence you can see why they cut it. And there's yeah, I think I think Carpenter, for a while, toyed with the idea of putting it back into the film. But then, when you watch the film again, you know, I, I I believe I had read that he said that realized that the movie doesn't get going until Snake arrives in New York. Well, and it's not know? just that; it's like the mystique of the character is not knowing much about his past and yeah. you know why he's he's a prisoner, all of this and. You know, it's it's why it makes it so fun. Where every yeah. time Snake runs into someone during the film who he's known from the past, the the reaction is, of course, yeah. you know, I thought you were dead. Uh, I think the book kind of delved into Snake's past too, because it talked about him uh, serving in some air force or something. You you uh, you flew that something or other jet over the Battle of Leningrad. Right, and see that's which is sort a, of a throwaway line, the, but it says a lot. You know. That's the thing, is that the actor who played his buddy during the heist sequence that got cut from the beginning of the film, um, Joe Unger is the actor's name. They, uh, they interviewed him in the... Uh, they do. The, right. There's a 10-minute yeah. interview with him in this, this new disc. And it's, it's a little bit sad, because, you know, he felt like it was going to be a big break for him, and it 
get completely cut out of the movie, but you can mm. still see it now on the disc here. But uh, yeah, they were. Turns out they were old like war buddies. You know, they're they're doing favors for each other. But it, see, it's also nice just having Snake being sort of like the lone wolf Mysterious. too. Though. Yeah, you know, keep the mystery. Keep him being you know a guy doing it on his own. Yeah, it's a better character that way. Yeah, you know that just reminded me. I, I I'm kind of making a stretch here, but I was just reading the the book, The Making of Major League. And uh, Jeremy Piven had all of his scenes delivered, deleted from the movie, and he had thought that that was going to be something that sort of put him on the map. Yep. You know? It's like anyone who's ever acted happens. in a Terry Malick film. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he'll, he'll shoot major roles and then just cut them from the film completely. Mm. Uh, I mean, that happened with The Thin Red Line. I didn't know that. What, what, what was the deal there? Adrian Brody, he was, you know, pretty much the star of the, the picture. And then his role was pretty much left on the cutting room floor. That made it a four-hour movie, though. Right, well, I mean, <laughs> in the script, he was the lead. But wow. it just, you know, Terry sort of finds his way. You know, Kurt Russell is an interesting choice for this because I, I do remember, and, and I think many people who were, uh, you know, aware of Kurt Russell's career back in 1980, that the whole strange sort of casting, you know, because he'd been known for Disney films. Right. And, I mean, um, you got to figure this, this was, this was s- kind of a risk putting him in this kind of role back right. then. It's no problem for us to see it this way today. No, it's but because back, of but this back movie. Then, this is the movie yeah. that made Kurt Russell who we think of as a Kurt Russell. Yeah. He had made one pro- run project. It was a TV yeah. movie with, uh, with um, John Carpenter before. Was it the Elvis? It was the Elvis one okay. that they had done a couple of years prior. And uh, they obviously enjoyed working together and wanted to do it again. And this was a script that uh, Carpenter had written back in 1974. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, when when they got the money to do it, and it was a really low-budget picture. It was only $5 million back then, which Mm. they stretched really about as far as... They were gonna, they, yeah, I think they, they got lucky with some of the locations, finding the right places, you know. Well, the, the locations are, shall we say, all over the map. Uh, yeah. I mean, they were, they were shooting in multiple locations, and it was all location work. They weren't building sets because they didn't have the money to really do it. They could dress mm-hmm. up the locations that they, they had, and they just happened to find these great locations. Yeah, who'd have thought that um, Escape from New York was actually filmed... You know, a fair amount of it, I guess, in East St. Louis, Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> Which had apparently just had a massive fire, and so they were using yeah. all the, like, destruction that was there. But even, Doesn't you know, shine kindly upon the film non-location in East St. Louis, Illinois. Well, some of the interior of uh, the World Trade Center is actually the campus of Cal Arts, and really? they needed graffiti all over the walls, and so they, they had apparently taken uh, some of the students from the school, and they what they did was they just put sort of facades on the walls that the, the kids could go and just sort of spray paint and draw all over. Oh, for, okay, right, right, right. Yeah. For those uh, interior World Trade Center shots. Yep. Yeah, Which, of course, the roof of the World Trade Center, they shot in a desert. Huh. They just mocked it up, and you can't see over the, the side, so that's it. You know, and it's it's at night, so you don't see, you know, potential cacti. Um, but that's the same thing. There's yeah. the chock-full-of-nuts scene with uh, Kurt Russell's ex-wife. 
They built I, that. I forget her name. She has the. That's his ex-wife, the girl who has that sort of bit. It's a season Hubley. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, I, he was he was I married was to her. I was disappointed that she didn't get to come back. I would have been. Well, he was married to her at the time, so it wasn't his ex-wife at the time. And and Adrian Barbeau was married to John Carpenter at the time. Well, you know, you got to combine work schedules, right? Make sure. Um, but the see each other. the chock full of nuts location, you know, which was a famous place in New York. They they also built that in the desert, mm. and they uh, they just clouded up the windows so that you couldn't see outside because again, you would have just seen desert what kind of um did she did she have any kind of an acting career i'm i'm sure you know i'll look it up right now but uh (laughs) she's not honestly she's not much on my radar yeah well you pull it up on imdb and the main credit that comes up is for all my children Hmm. ah she was in hardcore how could i have forgotten that a george c scott classic yeah, when she, when she appeared in the film, I thought that this was the first time I saw it. I was I, I thought that they were setting her up as the uh, the femme fatale. Well, know, sure. I mean, that's the 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 closest Snake <laughs> gets to having any sense of sexuality in the film, or, you know? or meeting a reasonable person. Well, there's that you know? too, but it's like they, you know, they're getting so close to each other, and it looks like there's some sexual tension there, and then all yeah. of a sudden, you know, the freaks all start converging on the place and technically they were supposed to be cannibals but you never actually see any cannibalism huh. but you better believe when she got pulled through the floor they were having a nice feast <laughs> well you know you have to wonder what they would do for food that's one of those that well they can they just hunt people you know who's i, I think gotten some real uh cult movie cash out of this is uh frank doubleday the guy who plays uh romero mm-hmm. i always thought of his character as being uh, just a just a minor character with a very memorable presence in the film. He's uh, you know highly regarded against uh, regarded by uh, Escape from New York fans as the guy who really sets the tone for the crazy that happens in New York City. A terrific performance well, too. Well, he shows up kind of the first one you see in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's sort of the psycho introduction to it. Yeah. But the the main cast, though, I mean, really, could you get much better? You got Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, Isaac Hayes really hadn't been cast in much of anything prior to this. Yeah. Donald Pleasance, I mean, oh, still right. makes... Let's not forget about Donald Pleasance. Still makes me know? laugh that he's yeah. he's cast as the president of the United States, and yet he still has his British accent. <laughs> Which... yeah, and, you know, with, with Ernest Borgnine, I actually thought at the time that this is Ernest Borgnine kind of slumming it. He looked like he was having a blast. I mean, the yeah. in, the introduction to his character in the movie still makes me but laugh. He, he has this long stretch of his career, and you know, through the eighties and maybe in the late seventies, where he does, and, and into the nineties, where he does these. Uh, you know, he became like a B movie actor. He was just taking anything. This is a guy who won a uh, an Academy Award for Marty back in the fifties, yep. and uh, his agent told him, "Look, you can't take certain roles. You know, you can't just win a." Oscar and then go work at Woolworths the day after. Could you even imagine this film without him? Uh, no. No, I I, I did come to learn that um, his character was added late in the game by, uh, oh, oh God, what's his name? Nick Castle Mm -hmm. did uh, some writing on the film, and he added the... uh, And a little bit of trivia here, Nick Castle is the actor, well, he's a writer-actor, but uh, he infamously played Michael Myers, the shape, in oh, the first right. Halloween. That's right. 
Which didn't he, didn't he also direct the last Starfighter? Is that the same Nick Castle? He does have a handful of directing credits. I should know this actually. Hmm. Uh, I think the, I think he and Carpenter went to. He uh, did. Uh, he did. It was in '84. I know he had done Tag, the assassination game. Huh. Which uh, <laughs> I don't know if. If, no, I don't think I've ever seen. Is that like laser tag or something? Well, this became sort of a big thing when I was going to school, where uh, you would have it was paintball within this movie tag. Okay. You know, tag stood for right. the assassination game, and uh, it was on a college campus, and people were playing assassins on campus hmm. and shooting each other with these paintball guns. And, uh, you, you know, the, the faculty didn't like it at all, but someone playing the game decided to actually start killing people. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were mentally unhinged, and so that was the thrust of that film. But back back when that movie came out, I was in, I was in middle school at the time, hmm. and so driven in part by this, this film, yeah. um, we had water pistols, and so you had these different teams going around our schools and you'd be shooting each other with these water guns hmm. at school and it led to like this big banning of you know water, water guns, guns at, at school. school it became a big problem all throughout boston getting a little off topic here no but, no that's that's okay i, I got to but, thinking isn't uh, escape from you wasn't it rated r it was and your parents let you see it well you got to understand i had my my oldest brother was 10 years older than me oh and so he would take me to the movies all the time. Yeah. And uh, he was a genre fan. I mean, he took me to see Jaws when I was five years old. Wow. You know, this is a story I love to tell about that, is the, the first time I saw it, you know, I left that theater just queasy from what I had seen, you oh, know. Lucky you, my parents wouldn't let me see it. But, <laughs> nevertheless, we went back and saw it the next day. Yeah. And I saw it countless times that summer. And... You know, I may have felt queasy that first time, but it was just nothing but exhilaration from, from that point in. Me, I remember being infatuated with Adrian Barbeau. Well, you know? there's a lot to be infatuated with there. Yeah, that was uh, that was certainly a draw. She's 70 years old now. Wow. And she still <laughs> looks good. Was this before or after Swamp Thing? I don't think it was before Swamp Thing. It was before. Yeah. Yep. Swamp Thing was, uh, I think, a year later, maybe two years later. It played in downtown Chicago, and mm -hmm. uh, I remember thinking it was uh, dangerous to watch at the time. But uh, I did eventually purchase it on video. It was a terrific, uh, you know, 80s video purchase, that and the, that and the Terminator. Must have been you panned know. and scanned. Oh, yeah. I mean, you really haven't seen the movie unless you've seen it in widescreen because, you know, Carpenter's or any of his films. You know, oh, yeah, he was shooting with anamorphic. Because uh, he was all about the widescreen. Just, yep. You know, a big proponent of that. Of that. He's... Well, and he had a great DP who went on a shoot just, uh, you know, uh, who's who or what's what of, of blockbuster um, films. the same guy who photographed E.T. did? Dean Cundey, um, yeah. He shot just from New York. tons of uh, Spielberg productions throughout the 80s. Hmm. Um, he did the Back to the Future films. Yeah. You know, he shot Jurassic Park. He did just all of these big effects pictures. And uh, the effects work in this film is is pretty noteworthy very very impressive for the budget that they were working on you know to to be able to get the uh, the the whole notion of computer graphics with 
without actually having photographed expensive computer graphics at that time. But the, the miniature of New York that they filmed for the for the. Um, but they simulate computer graphics. It's not even real computer graphics. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. pretty wonderful. They, uh, you know, these these buildings to represent the buildings in Manhattan. They're all these miniatures that they built out of cardboard. Yeah. And they sort of made them look like wireframe models by painting these green lines all over them. And so they were actually photographing. It was motion control photographing, hmm. camera moving, you know, towards and through these buildings to represent sort of wireframe models or what we would think of as wireframe models you know that, now. that whole sequence with the glider approaching New York is just so well done. Uh, you know, the, the miniatures, just uh, just amazing. And it looks it looks convincing. Yep. And it's, um, it, it was helped by the fact that, uh, you know, it's shot to be nighttime. Hmm. And uh, it was shot inside of a warehouse. But because there aren't any lights in any of the buildings... Hmm. They didn't have to worry about the the scale being. Well, right. it, it actually really right. helped the scale. Right. It was trying to figure out how to have the the water surrounding Manhattan look real, and the way oh. they did that was nice too. It was just a painted floor. Really? Yeah, it was just the reflective surface. It just, you know, had a little bit of a ripple effect. It was a concrete floor that they had painted on top of. Hmm. Um, but one I of just the, love this ingenuity. Love it. It was actually, it was, uh, it, the, the effects work was done by uh, Roger Corman's old group, but uh, one of the people involved who was doing some of the camera work and matte paintings for the film was Jim Cameron. I wonder if this was his first, no, I think his first gig was uh, Humanoids from the Deep. Well, he had done, uh, he had worked on Battle that. Beyond the Stars, but on this picture, I mean, he did some really notable shots. The, uh... The establishing shot of Air Force One at the beginning. Yeah. It's a, a model I photographed of the plane, but it was composited into um, basically 3D clouds. He had he had built just this massive stage full of, of clouds made of monofilament. Huh. And, and he was responsible for fabricating it and photographing it. And uh, so that was a really big shot for him. There's a there's a, a matte painting a matte shot during one of the few daylight sequences in the movie. Oh, that's right. That's uh, over Central like... Central Park when their helicopters doing an, an airdrop. Yeah. And uh, Cameron actually painted that matte painting on glass, and it's interesting in the commentary tracks. It's a forced perspective shot, I suspect. Uh, no, it's not. They you shot. Mean, the... They filmed the glass live with the. Oh yeah, you know, in front of the camera. In front of the camera. Okay. The yeah. Very old school way of doing it. Yeah. Because you don't go down in any generations by photographing it live like that. Because mm. um, if you had done a composite, you would have gone down a generation, and it would make it look less real. Yeah. But you know, one of the commentary tracks on this disc is um, Deborah Hill and Joe Alves, the production designer. So it's the producer and and the production designer. And when it came to that particular shot with that matte painting, they were really impressed watching it, and they were uh, trying to figure out who did it, and they're saying, wow, they must have been, uh, you know, Albert Whitlock, who's known as one of the old best in the business for doing these matte paintings. But what they obviously didn't realize is that it was, you know, king of the world, James Cameron, who had painted that shot. There are a few references in the making of materials that, uh, oh, yes, this was, uh, uh, you know, 
That guy, James Cameron, he went on to have a career. Yes. So. Well, the, the, the effects company in the, the picture was run by the, um, the Skotek brothers, who kept doing work for Cameron. Um, they did all the like future war miniature stuff in the original hmm. Terminator. Wow. Um, they even did stuff in, in Terminator 2. But, uh, you know, they, they worked so cheaply on this picture because, you know, they had various big effects houses bidding on the project and they really wanted the work. And so they had to do a really low bid. And that's why they, you know, were making stuff out of cardboard because they hmm. just didn't have the budget to, to do otherwise. But they hired Cameron for this picture because, you know, they knew him as a, a guy who was a real go-getter. Hmm. But they really let him do his own thing because, you know, Cameron is notoriously, <laughs> you let him do what he wants to do because he's going to do what he's, he's going to do. It's like, oh. I'm guessing he likes a certain amount of control. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a, there, you look at one of the mm. visual effects legends over the past 30, 40 years, it's uh, this Dennis Muren who's won tons of Oscars for yeah. visual effects work at Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, Muren had never worked with Jim Cameron before uh, until they did... The Abyss? Uh, there was The Abyss, yeah. Well, when it came time for Terminator 2... Um, that, that was just after The Abyss, Terminator it, 2. Well, it wasn't just after. It was actually a handful of years. Yeah, um, yeah it, was, it was actually a fairly... Yeah, good, I think I good think gap. Um, but those were the first two pictures yeah, that were like 93. landmarks for yeah. and right and the the abyss was 89. Mm-hmm. And Dennis Muren, you know, working for Cameron in charge of this CG which uh, Muren's capabilities with CG aren't incredibly hands-on, but he oversees the stuff. He it's, he lets the young Turks do the work. And Muren has the eye to tell them, you know, whether or not it looks good enough, mm-hmm. you know, real enough. And uh, I know there was one story where Muren was on set with Cameron and it, it was just they needed a plate shot. And uh, Muren told Cameron, you know, I'll take care of this. You can go off if you have something else to shoot. And there's like the crew who had all worked with Cameron before just kind of laughed the gasp because it's like you don't tell Jim Cameron to go and do something else as you do something for him because hmm. he's going to do everything himself and that's it's the same thing with this movie too it was like yeah. the stuff that he worked on on this film he was in charge of and they had some really interesting shots because the transitions are so smooth from set to set in the opening scene there's uh, um, a, an establishing shot of the city there's, there's a lot sort of, of the camera moves downward, and then and then as it fades to blackness, it moves over to a set. Yeah, it's a tec- the, uh, it's a technique that that Liberty Island set, you know. Yep, it's a, it's a technique that Matching Hitchcock the motion of the camera. would match moves. Oh, that's right. You're right. Very good. They really yeah. they really took it to heart. It's like you pan across something until you get to an area that's black, and you use that as your cut, and you keep the same camera move going when you've shot in a different location, and it looks. Seamless, as though you've, you're still within the same location, you even know, though you... You have to wonder how they were able to time that uh, camera move to make sure it was just at the same... I would have to magic. think it's just dolly shots for the most part, yeah. watching the movie. It ends up looking great. They got these great shots from the Statue of Liberty, and apparently that was a very Ex- rare opportunity to film there, actually, on the island. 
Uh, I know they were using a Panaglide system on this movie, which was the first time any of them had, had used it. Cam- mm. um, Carpenter had not used it before, and I think well, Dean Cundy, it, it was even new to him. Than, is that different than the way the, the opening shot of uh, Halloween is? Isn't that like, that's a that's a floating Steadicam? Steadicam, which is yeah. different than a Panaglide. But I mean, these are these are movies that were just packed with ingenuity. It's kind of like the early Sam Raimi pictures, or even the early Jim Cameron pictures. Hmm. You know, you you don't have a budget to to make what you really want to make, and yet you end up making something that's in a lot of ways better because you're forced to just come up with anything you can to get your your vision on screen. Yeah, in particular, those glider shots. That shot later on in the film where they push the glider off the top of the World Trade Center. You like the shot where it's falling through the air? Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's that's one shot that I've never particularly cared for. It's a, it's a composite shot with the, the glider tumbling. And even the, uh, the effects technicians aren't terribly thrilled with that shot. Hmm. They wanted to shoot, uh, you know, a reverse angle. They wanted to see the glider tumbling towards the ground. The way it is in the film is you see right. it tumbling towards, towards, the camera. towards the camera. And they actually thought they would take one of their models and take it up to a rooftop and drop it down and photograph it. But the feeling was, you know, then they would be destroying the model. And <laughs> Save the model. No one wanted to do that. But yeah, the Skotek brothers aren't terribly happy with that shot out of any in the film. I think that's the one they wish mm. they had done differently. You know, you made a good point about um, the new Blu-ray before recording. The disc has three audio commentaries, and you'd notice something that I didn't even notice, which was that uh, the first audio commentary is um, at a considerably lower volume level, level than the rest. For what reason? I How the hell could that happen? It's just... It just happened on the mastering, obviously. I, want, I would like to say, I would just like, I want to interject that I think the actual film itself, I, th- I think Shout Factory does a phenomenal job with the, uh, you know, the reworking of the of the print onto the onto oh, the, the disc, I mean, the, it just looks beautiful. The you know? visual quality of the picture really is superb, and uh, you know, the the picture, considering you know what they were dealing with making the movie, um, even sounds great. But yeah, the uh, the commentary track with there's there's three commentary tracks. There's one yeah. with uh, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, where I mean that really is the priceless one because they're just you know two buddies hanging out and you know who doesn't want to hear them reminiscing about making this this picture yeah um and then there's another commentary track with uh the late deborah hill i think she died back in 2005 and these tracks would have all been recorded back in for the 2001 20th anniversary dvd release i would love it if somebody out there wrote a biography of Deborah Hill. It's a very inter- she has a very interesting career. Well, and she and produced all of uh, Carpenter's early work. Yeah. But yeah, there's a commentary track with uh, with Deborah Hill and Joe Alves, which is also interesting. But unfortunately, yeah, the the third commentary track, which is with Adrian Barbeau and Dean Semler, the cinematographer. It's just the... the Dean Simler or Dean Cundy? Cundy. Did yeah. I say Simler? Yeah. Ooh, big mistake, Brett. Yeah. No, it's... Uh, Road Warrior and Dances with Wolves. Dean Cundy. Cundy <laughs> is the, the man, and I've probably been calling him Simler all along here. Bad, Brett. Get your Deans mixed up. Bad. 
I won't make the Dean's list with that. But yeah, the, the audio level on that track is just so low where with my audio setup, I was having great difficulty getting through it because I just couldn't hear a lot of it. Um, hopefully, if they press more versions of the disc, they can go back yeah, and... I wonder if it was just the disc or if it's on every one. I don't know. With this particular disc, I don't know. I mean, I would tend to think once you're dealing with the, the digital assets like that, everything's probably gone out like that. I did like that one of the bonus features on the discs that is the, on the disc that is the uh, interview with um, uh, the still photographer, Kim Gottlieb Walker. Terrific... Uh, Photographs. I like those, um, you know, candid moments. Uh, I don't recall the name of the book, but I assume it's on John Carpenter or just on. It's yeah. It's it's, it's all her production stills on the set or something. It's, like yep, Carpenter's in the title of the book. And terrific photos. It's I, I I like the idea of like some, you know, still photographer who was just you know trying to get her first job, and uh, is afforded this opportunity to to uh, photograph the making of a film that becomes a cult classic. So she has all these, uh, you know, terrific shots. And as she yeah. says in, in this uh, interview with her, um, which is also there to promote the book, which, hey, it worked. I'm, I'm curious to check it out myself. Um, she's saying, you know, it's a different era. She was the, the unit photographer, the still photographer on this production. And she said, you know, nowadays everyone has a cell phone on these sets. Oh, right. And so a lot of these productions won't even hire unit photographers now, which is a shame because, you know, now the first movies you ever see from a, movie, uh, a film are the ones that leak onto the Internet. And there's no control over these shots. So that's why anytime you see someone in costume and everyone's bitching, oh, this looks terrible. It's like it's because there's there's no control over the image whatsoever. I mean, sure, if I took my cell phone and started taking pictures at a movie set, they'd look like garbage as well. Well, that's, that's one of the major mandates toward extras and crew members while they're working on a film is you have to, um, if, you, if you pull out your cell phone, you're fired. Um, she also, uh, the, uh, Kim Gottlieb, she, she mentions the fact that it was also at a time where they didn't have, uh, cameras weren't muted. So you couldn't actually take a photo while they were filming the scene because they pick it up. Right. Also, there's a terrific interview on there with the uh, co-composer and uh, how fans still dig the uh, the soundtrack. Did you say that it just came out on a or it had recently been released on on vinyl or something? Yeah, it's actually the the newest vinyl release is a higher quality reissue of the original vinyl release. Huh. That. Beret's Sarabande had done back... It was it was done after the movie was made. Yeah, it's got to be a collectible by now. Yeah, well, it certainly is, and it, it was the best-selling soundtrack to come out back then. It uh, Again, this is stuff that's in the extras, particularly one with Alan Howarth, who is a hmm. co-composer with Carpenter. Um, this was the first picture they had worked on together, and, uh, you know, they worked for... I, I think they did about seven or eight more pictures together after this one. Huh. And they really just hit it off. They're around the same age, so they became sort of just, you know, fast friends, had the same cultural references, touchstones. But, uh, yeah, Varese approached them and said they wanted to do a soundtrack, and Carpenter wasn't too keen on the idea because he, he was sort of like, well, you know, the music is part of the, the movie, and, you know, they thought they'd do it, but since they hadn't really... 
they they kind of had to recreate the stuff mm. for this vinyl release, and because vinyl was you know you're limited to just the two sides, you know they couldn't include everything that was composed for the movie, and so, so this was a, a recomposed for the new vinyl release. No, 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 no. This was the initial one back when the after the okay. the film had come out in '81, and uh, you know at the time they say they would sell about maybe ten thousand units of something like that, but with this one. They ended up selling eighty or ninety thousand units, which was kind of unheard of for that type of thing. Hmm. And uh, a, a little interesting tidbit from the interview on this disc, on this Blu-ray, is uh, the artwork they used on the original vinyl release was the the poster image for the movie. And there's the there's a gigantic gold sticker that slapped onto the front of this thing. That says, you know, it's com- composed by John Carpenter um, in conjunction with Alan Howarth. And it's just this massive sticker. And the reason why it's so big is because it was to cover up the actors on the poster because they didn't have the rights to using their likenesses. Hmm. Really? Yeah. you got to get separate rights to have their likenesses used on the, uh, on the LP. That was it. And they didn't, they didn't, you know, work that out. So that, that was their solution for it. And so, yeah, that was a big success. And mm. years later, there was a CD version that came out. And they went back in and did a lot more work on that. And there's more content. Didn't uh, did they or just John Carpenter himself put out an album of lost themes, a CD of uh, John Carpenter lost themes or something Ooh, like that? Ooh, Steve, that's something I don't have. But <laughs> now I want it. Uh, it was something that was released by a uh, small indie distributor uh, and I think I think it's that's, called Lost Themes. I know there's somebody out there listening so that, knowing what it is. That's all there is these days is these small indie distributors. There's yeah. there's no more big labels releasing this stuff. Maybe I mean we could talk there. a bit about Russell. Well, we've barely spoken about him cuz I mean, this is his favorite role he's ever done. Yeah. And I mean he he really pushed to make the sequel that came out, um, what well, I think it was, ninety six. So it was a, uh, yeah. Well, it's because it's not nearly as good. It doesn't have the thrust that this this one does. And it was honestly, it was more, more comical. Yeah, I immediately think of uh, Steve Mich- Buscemi. Yep. Wasn't uh, what's his name from Easy Rider? Peter Fonda. Was Peter Fonda. Well, yeah, they had the surfing yeah. scene. And... Uh, doing it out west doesn't imagine. Or, you know, it doesn't have the <laughs> the. Uh, the darkness that New York might offer. I mean, for for those video game fans who might be listening in here, I mean, we wouldn't have the Metal Gear Solid series if it wasn't for Escape from New York. Oh, that's right. Isn't uh, one of the characters named after... Uh... It's Solid Snake or just Snake, yeah. you know? It's uh, with his eye patch and huh. <laughs> it's all taken wholesale out of this. Even the, the second game in that series, there was a character named Iroquois Pliskin, who it turns out is really? just snake in disguise. And, huh. Yeah. You know, the other thing about this movie is the production design is so quintessentially 80s, you know, with the... Oh, well, the there's, there's, the there's look, a... The neon. One thing I, I meant to say earlier is, you know, seeing this as an 11-year-old, I had never been to New York yet. You know, we only live about... Here in Boston, we're about three and a half hours away, but I had not yet been to the Big Apple yet. And uh, so, you know... I see this movie, and of course, this movie to me is New York. (laughs) 
You know, they may as well have shot the whole thing in New York because this is my idea of New York. So when I you've seen Escape from New York, so you you know how they live. Right. So once I finally get to the city, I'm like, this is nothing like this movie, and yet they created this world that was so believable that I absolutely bought off on it as being New York when it's really an amalgam of all these different locations and you know California and the Midwest and. It's funny now watching the, you know, right big climax of of this movie when they're trying to get out of Manhattan. They're having to cross this bridge that's just booby trapped with these bombs. And uh, story wise, it's very simple and clear. You know, everybody has this hope that they're going to make it. That yep. they're going to be able to get out of their. It's just the, uh, the bridge sentence, you know? The bridge they're crossing is so tiny. There's no bridge going out of New York that would be this size. Yeah, they were able to find a bridge in uh, East St. Louis, Illinois, and uh, I don't remember where I was reading online, but apparently they bought the bridge for a dollar and then sold it back to the city. Yep, yep. And, uh, after filming was uh, completed, so... But again, it, it's like it's brilliant use of the stuff in, in the movie. You know, I'm almost sad that the real New York doesn't look more like <laughs> what's in this movie. Even though it's a prison. This, this movie certainly gets an award for locations. As well it should. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can visit us online at diaboliquemagazine.com. And, of course, don't forget to pick up the latest issue of Diabolique Magazine. If you have any comments about the Diabolique webcast, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. I'm at steve at horrorunlimited.com. 